Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Judith Gordon. She is a high-performance coach and facilitator and is currently the founder and CEO of Leader ESQ, a coaching and training consultancy. She is also on the faculty of UCLA School of Law, where she teaches emotional intelligence, stress management, and high-performance skills training. In this one, we dive into the elements of thriving, especially for high achievers who tend to experience overwhelm and burnout managing one's energy and mindset, the essential role that core values and intrinsic motivation play in success and thriving, and so much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is Judith Gordon. Do you feel like the people that you coach, and we will dive into the exact archetypes of your clients, but in general, do you feel like for the most part, the folks that you coach are not having fun in terms of their work. Yes, I would say that they are not having fun. They want to have more fun, like many of us who were on this high achiever ladder, if you will, were taught to work hard and you know put your nose to the grind and you'll be successful. Like I said, fun got left by the wayside and they're not having fun. And one of the things that we do work on in my coaching sessions is how do I have more fun? I find that they want to have more time with their son or daughter. They want to have more time with their partner. They want to have more time socializing and they don't know how to make that happen. Do you feel like it's because they don't prioritize fun in their life or is there some other reason for this? I would say that it is because they don't prioritize it, but it's also because there's a, a misunderstanding about how to be a high-achieving individual. So if you're actually a high-achieving individual, a highly productive individual, then you're not working all of the time. The most productive people in our society, the most productive uh, people at work are those who recognize how our human operating system works, right? So we're not designed to be on all of the time. And I think that one of the things that's lacking in our education, especially higher education, is how this human operating system works. How do we take advantage of the way we're designed so that we get the most out of who we are, right? And how we function. So if you go to business school, if you're lucky enough to go to business school, then you learn a lot of the elements of say, emotional intelligence and how to interact with people because 
that is a fundamental skill in business. But if you go into a profession that is more analytically oriented, like medicine, like law, like engineering, like science, then those skills are either undeveloped or underdeveloped. And the message is always, how do we produce as much as necessary on these issues or on this topic? And fun is not a part of that. If we introduced fun and a lot of the skills, the human skills that we need to be successful into the equation, I think people would be way more productive and much more personally satisfied. There wouldn't be this separation between work and life. So let's talk about the types of individuals that you coach. So we are talking about high achievers. We are talking about folks in high pressure environments, CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, lawyers, etc. You say there's primarily two types of individuals that come into the coaching world, those that are inspired and those that are tired. I love this, but can you explain what's going on here? Yeah. So those that are inspired are the lifelong learners. They're the ones who recognize that in order to actually get to where it is they envision that they want to go to accomplish the things that they envision or achieve the goals and objectives that they have, that there are things they need to learn along the way. So our education system teaches us to read and to write, add and subtract, maybe a little history, a little chemistry. These are external types of knowledge that might be useful to us, right, at some point, depending on what subject we choose to learn. But what we're not taught, we're not educated on how to assess our own experience, our thoughts, our feelings, our motivation, are our thoughts serving us, are our thoughts interfering with us. Oftentimes we don't act in our own best interest because we have beliefs that get in the way and they may be very subtle so we're not aware of them. So we, we have to look at these elements. So the inspired ones are the ones who realize, wait, if I want to really get to where I'm going, there's a lot I need to learn about myself, how I manage my energy. Am I thinking appropriately, supportively, helpfully? Do I have thoughts that are interfering with my ability to get where I want to go? Am I feeling it? You know, if you think about athletes and when they have to go out onto a tennis court or the basketball court or, you know, leap off of a ski jump, they better be feeling it because if they're not feeling it, they're not going to perform very well, right? So the same is true for entrepreneurs and high achievers. We have to be in the right mood. We have to have the right mindset. We have to be motivated to be doing what it is we want to accomplish. So the inspired, I heard somebody once say actually at a retreat I was facilitating, one of the executives, she was actually an architect, said something to the effect that in order to be the best executive that you can be, you really do need this kind of coaching, this help being the best you can be so that you can live your best life. The tired, unfortunately, probably were inspired, but they became exhausted because they were taught, as I was taught, put your nose to the grind, work hard, and you'll achieve success. And there is no room, no one ever told us, it's okay to take a break. It's okay to go shoot some hoops or take a walk. 
No, you've got to keep working hard. And, and that's how we burn out. We keep going without recharging. And by the time they realize that, uh-oh, I've done something wrong or something's not working here, they're exhausted. Let's talk about burnout for a moment because burnout is a big backdrop with respect to the type of work that you do. So without talking about the obvious factors like too many hours in front of a laptop, can you also describe what other elements contribute to burnout that might be surprising to people? Our own thoughts about how to be successful, about how to achieve that might get in the way. That we have a narrative that is not supportive or not helpful, that drives us in a direction that actually is self-sabotaging or is detrimental. So I had a client, very successful attorney, top of her firm, who had a mental block. It was a belief that was getting in her way. And it was uh, interfering with her health and her life enjoyment and her work and her family. And she was able to still go to work and operate at a very, very high level. But this mental block got to the point where she, it was front and center. She had to address it because it was affecting her from morning till night, physically, emotionally, mentally. So these are the kinds of things that can lead us if we don't address them to a place of burnout. And I'm, I'm using the term burnout colloquially, not in the diagnostic sense. There is a diagnostic definition of burnout, and it has three elements, which that is occupational, it related to our work, that there's a level of exhaustion that's no longer sustainable, and that we become cynical. And I think probably a lot of people meet this definition of burnout and don't even realize it. I mean, you're part of the faculty at UCLA School of Law, where you do talk about this in addition to other areas of emotional intelligence and stress management, things of that nature. I have heard so many different definitions of emotional intelligence, and I feel like those are two words that are in the zeitgeist that people sort of loosely toss around without real profound understanding of what it means to have a high EQ. So would you mind just defining it in your own terms for listeners? What is emotional intelligence? Yeah, so emotional intelligence does have a very clear definition. And emotional intelligence begins with awareness. It's awareness of our emotions. What am I feeling in this moment? The second element is accurate assessment of those emotions. Am I accurately assessing that experience that I'm having? And the third element is behavioral self-management. Am I able then to manage the behavior as a result of that emotional state. We have, I think, to some degree lost the range of emotional vocabulary that would serve us. So we experience wide range of emotions all day long, every day, moment to moment. And being aware of that is very, very useful, really beneficial to how well we perform in any given moment. And then social intelligence would be the next level. So that is how well I assess the experience I'm having with another person and then appropriately managing that relationship. So managers and supervisors and actually entrepreneurs, any entrepreneur who's in a business development situation has to be able to assess what the experience of the person, the potential client is. Am I creating a positive emotional experience for my potential client? 
because that's how people make financial decisions. There's a lot of interesting research about that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you worried about the next generations? I'm Gen X, so I'll just use myself as a benchmark, but the generation underneath me, so millennials and underneath them, Gen Z, in your research, are you seeing that these generations are beginning to slightly over-index on EQ or is there a shortfall? Are they under-indexing? My experience with millennials is really positive, that they are highly emotional intelligent, that they're not afraid of interacting, that they are willing and ready to dive in to their experiences, and that they're highly aware individuals. That's my experience with my students and with the younger clients that I've worked with. And the reason for the millennials still being, I think, in in what I would say an emotionally intelligent category is that they actually had a time of their lives when they weren't attached to devices. Most millennials had probably 10 or 12 years before they were completely dependent on a device. There is a fear of one-on-one direct social interaction that's been documented in the research. Yeah, that's scary, I think. Um, Certainly not a healthy direction in my opinion. And we could go down a whole rabbit hole related to devices. We'll do that another time. But this idea of the four M's, I want to come back to this because you mentioned two. So as it relates to someone who is thriving, you say there's really four M's that we need to pay attention to. You mentioned two already, one being mood, two being mindset. What are the Mm -hmm. other two and how do they play here? The other two are motivation and managing our energy. So. We can take them one at a time, but I think what's important to recognize is that they are all happening simultaneously, all at the same time in each of us in any given moment. So our mindset is, what are we thinking? And how are those thoughts influencing our experience in this moment? So if I'm going to sit down to work on a project, what do I think about that project? Am I excited about that project? Am I dreading that project? that matters. That's mood too. That's how I feel about that project. If I'm not in the mood to do it, I might procrastinate. I might kick the can down the road. I might have to dive into it, but not do a very good job. Because if I'm not in the mood, remember we said, if we're not feeling it, our performance isn't as good. So there's what we think about it and what we feel about the task in front of us. Then there's the motivation. Why am I doing this? If I'm being motivated by my paycheck, I'm only doing this job because I get a paycheck, then that's an extrinsic motivator. And extrinsic motivators are fine. I you know, believe in making a lot of money. It's really, really important. And we can talk about that. But what's important here is what matters to us most. What's driving our behavior? What's motivating us? And what the research shows is that if we're not aligned with our values, if we don't know what our core values are and what motivates us, And if there's a mismatch between our 
core values and the work we're doing, then our subjective well-being takes a dive. It plummets. So there has to be some alignment between what we care about internally as humans and the work we're doing. Even if that's tangential, it's helpful, but we have to find some connection. For a lot of people, they don't even know what matters to them. They've never done a values identification or they've never had an opportunity to dive into their core values or what matters to them most because most of us, are, when we're growing up, are being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not who. What matters to you? What do you like? What do you care about? Some children are probably encouraged to follow their natural inclinations or to look at that more deeply. But in my experience, what I've seen are that, is that there are a lot of people who are doing things because they're supposed to, because they've been told they need to be high achievers. They choose a path that sounds good. I see this a lot in my students. And the first thing we do on the very first day of our class is the values identification. Why are you here? Why are you in law school? What got you here? Because you had to go through a lot of hoops to get here. You, you have to take the LSAT. You have to do well in undergrad. You have to take an entrance exam. You have to fill out applications. You have to pay money. So what was driving that? Was it intrinsic or extrinsic? And that makes a difference. Yeah, there's so many things I want to unpack related to what you just said. So this exercise of identifying one's core values, and you mentioned, actually, you sort of glossed over it, that a lot of people don't even understand what their core values are, let alone how to match up your core values with what you're doing day to day. So how does one go about identifying what their core values are? And how do you build alignment in terms of I guess what your core values are and what you're doing to make a living or what you're doing in your career. There are a few ways to do that. One is you could do a values identification. There are a lot of different ones online. And basically you go through a long list of values and you circle the ones that you think are the most important. And then you weed out, you know, even more important and more important until you get down to like a few core values. And then you look to see whether the work you're doing, whether you can find some alignment, because sometimes there is alignment. It's just we need to look a little more deeply. Another way to think about core values is without X being my value, life would not be enjoyable. Life wouldn't be worth pursuing. You know, what is it that makes life meaningful to you? Life wouldn't be meaningful. That's a better way to put it. So without X, life wouldn't be meaningful. That's a, another way to identify core values. Another way to identify core values is to look at where we put our, our energy and our, our time and our money. So I actually didn't think about it this way when I realized that sustainability is a core value of mine because I tend to be on the extreme side of recycling and composting and things in that realm. So then one day it occurred to me, well, I put a lot of time and attention and energy into making sure that I'm keeping my carbon footprint low. So that must be a core value of mine. Sometimes it's not always obvious. Sometimes we have to look at what are our actions? What actions are we taking? Where are we putting our time and our energy? And sometimes that's a good indication of what our core values are and our money. What are we contributing to? And then the, probably the final way would be to think about what lights me up? What really creates kind of a fire in the belly when I hear about it or think about it or see it or wish I could do that I'm not doing. 
do you feel like a lot of high achievers are living in alignment with their core values, at least the ones you coach or the sample size that you've come across? What I have found is that some of them aren't, but when we do the values identification, we find the alignment. So that maybe intuitively they followed a path that they thought would be okay for them and they were doing it for extrinsic reasons. But then when we were digging a little deeper, we were able to find the alignment between what they're doing and what their innermost desires are, what they care about the most, what matters most. It's rare that we haven't been able to align what matters to them most and the work they're doing. But in those cases, what we do is we find things in their life that are meaningful to them so that they're able to tolerate, if you will, the time that they're spending in their workplace or doing the kind of work that they're doing. So you coach lawyers, obviously, and you yourself were a practicing attorney way back when. I would love for you to explain sort of how you got into coaching and why you decided to focus on lawyers first. But I would also love to dive into the common characteristics and beliefs or behaviors of lawyers and entrepreneurs and CEOs and executives, and also perhaps what makes them different or what separates, say, how a a really high achieving attorney at a law firm, say in New York, how their behavior might be somewhat different than a successful founder or entrepreneur. Yeah, I think they probably are a little more alike than they are different. But if I can start from the end of your question, I'd say the difference is probably in the thinking approach. So founders and entrepreneurs are a little more willing to think creatively. So I think that Apple's tagline, think different, that's really a profound invitation to us to examine our own thinking. And I think that's missing what I've seen, the commonality that I've seen among lawyers, executives, CEOs, business people, is this reluctance or resistance to examining their own thinking. And it might not even be an intentional resistance or an intentional reluctance. Most of us believe everything we think. I used to think that too. My thought was, if I think it, it must be real, so it must be true. But the danger is that not everything we think is true. And in fact, most of what we think isn't true. It's just thoughts that we're having. And they're random, and they're called actually automatic negative thoughts, ants for short. We all have these automatic negative thoughts. And they tend to run our daily lives. And until we become aware of them, they're operating in the background. They're kind of subtly operating in the background there. So I'd say the commonality is that most of us don't examine our thinking. And if we are aware of our thinking, a lot of it is not self-serving. It's not supportive and it's not helpful. And that's a narrative that we can change and it's essential to change. I think that we really start to find success and live a thriving life when we shift that narrative. If I want to go from being a vice president to the CEO, then my thinking has to align with someone who is in the position of a CEO. And if I'm having thoughts that I might not, I might not have all the skills or I've been taught to be seen and not heard, sometimes we have these very subtle childhood messages that get in the way, then that's going to interfere with our path to wherever it is we're going. So it's critical that each of us examines our own thinking and challenges our own thinking. Were lawyers the first 
group of clients that you began coaching? And why did you start with lawyers beyond the obvious of you being an attorney at one point? What happened to me is that I recalled being a high achiever from the time probably first started thinking about it in high school. So this idea of being a high achiever, that I wanted to be with the smart kids and that I wanted to go to college and I wanted to be successful, et cetera. I put myself on that path and I went to college and I went to grad school, then I went to law school, then I got a job. And one day I I found myself just literally holding my head in my hands and thinking something has got to change because I realized that everything looked beautiful on the outside. I had a good job, they're good people, nice colleagues. The work was hard, but it was, you know, good work, but I was deeply unhappy. And I didn't know why. I couldn't fathom why that was. So I hacked my life. I looked back at what were the decisions I made? Why did I make those decisions? What were the beliefs that set me on that path? Why did I turn right and not left? And I really took it apart. I did my own values identification. I realized that the work I was doing wasn't aligned with my values, not well aligned. So I made some changes there. That was very helpful. But what happened was, so I thought this was me, right? We all think we're having our own experience. Nobody else is unhappy. Nobody else is suffering. Nobody else is burning out back then, at least. Now people are more open about their day-to-day experience. But then everybody you know, put on a suit and just looked like they were doing great. So I thought it was just me. And then I was at my desk and this article randomly showed up. What this article showed that the researchers had uh, done a study of incoming law students. And what they found was that incoming law students are as idealistic and healthy, mentally healthy, as other students who enter graduate school but that by the middle of their first semester, they're already starting to exhibit signs of psychopathology like depression, anxiety, extreme substance use, inappropriate substance use, right? And why was that? And what the researchers found, which I found so fascinating, was that when there's this disconnect between our values and our work, in this case, the students in law school, when there's a mismatch or a disconnect, then subjective well-being plummets. And I I say subjective well-being because it's individual. Some students don't respond that way. Now, what is it about law school that did this? Well, in law school, the approach is analytical. So the focus is on analytical thinking. And what you feel is irrelevant, your opinion is irrelevant, your moral compass is irrelevant. And so the students have to disconnect from their core values, from what's most meaningful to them, in order to be successful on this very rigorous scholastic path. So I read this article and I thought, oh my gosh, I figured this out myself. I went through this process. I have developed these tools and strategies for myself that have worked and I can do something about this. So I sent proposals out to every law school in the Los Angeles area. And fortunately for me, uh, UCLA was open to the idea of teaching these these skill sets, this class. It was very well received. It started as a seminar. It was well received. The students really enjoyed it and did well. They found that it was helpful. And so it became a two-credit class that I've been teaching now for more than 10 years. 
I want to come back to something you said. Making a lot of money is important, or you, you said a version of that. It's kind of a loaded statement. I don't know if it's, it's, I mean, it's certainly a bold statement. I don't know if it's controversial to those that might be listening or some. Obviously, it's going to resonate with most folks out there. I just would like to know what you mean by this. Is a lot of money important? And or what is the role of money in moving the needle on one's happiness or fulfillment here? So money in and of itself is nothing. It's just a vehicle. And this is where we get into intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. This is so important. And I think it'll hopefully create a light bulb for some people. So say I want a Ferrari. Perfectly legitimate pursuit, right? You can want a Ferrari. What matters is why I want that Ferrari. If I want that Ferrari so that people know, like first present a certain image, then that satisfaction that one might get from people saying, oh, very cool, you've got a Ferrari is limited. It's temporary, right? It's, it's going to fade really quickly because that's an extrinsic motivation. It's what you want other people outside of you to think of you. If I want that Ferrari because my core values are adventure and adrenaline and speed and fun, then that Ferrari is the gift that keeps on giving because it's intrinsically motivated. Every time I go to the racetrack and I zoom around that racetrack, I am getting the joy from that Ferrari. So if I'm at a job, this is kind of the definition of golden handcuffs. If I'm working at a job that's not aligned with my core values, but they're paying me a lot of money, then that is not sustainable for the long term. My fulfillment, my sense of happiness and fulfillment will decline because it's an extrinsic, solely extrinsic motivator. It's a carrot and stick situation. If I'm doing work that is interesting to me, even if it's challenging, then I have the ability to sustain what it takes to meet those challenges. But if I'm only doing it because of the money, then sustaining that over the long term is much more difficult. So the other quick example is running a marathon. So if you say to me, Judith, I'll pay you 50 bucks to run a marathon. I start the training, go, sure, I'll take your 50 bucks, Adam. And then it's a cold February morning and it's raining out. You know, my motivation for getting out of bed and running uh, 10 miles because you've offered me 50 bucks is pretty low or even 500, right? I might not want to get out of bed at six o'clock on a cold February morning. But if I'm running that marathon because I'm committed to a cause for which I'm raising money, then even if I'm exhausted and it's cold and it's rainy, that will motivate me to get out of bed more quickly and more readily than your $500. So I just want to touch on happiness really, really quickly for a moment. I love the definition that positive psychology uses of happiness, and that is twofold, more positive than negative emotions. All of our emotions matter. All of our emotions are important. We need to understand when we're upset or angry or sad that's important, but we want to have more positive than negative emotions. And the other definition, part of the definition that I love, is that happiness is what do we find interesting? What do we find meaningful? What elicits curiosity in us? And so happiness isn't always this feeling of giddiness or lightness. Happiness is interest and meaning and curiosity and fulfillment. So I think those are really, really important concepts because most people probably are happy by that definition, 
right? More positive than negative emotions and, and doing work that they find meaningful or fulfilling. I've also heard something to the effect of uh, the net difference between our fulfillment and expectation equals happiness. I want to transition to this idea of the correlation between one's physical environment and one's level of fulfillment and happiness and productivity. So in addition to those that you've coached who have changed their physical environment in the hopes of moving the needle on these things, you yourself made the leap from LA to New Mexico. So I have a three-part question for you. Number one, why did you decide to leave LA after so many years? Two, why New Mexico? And three, what have you learned from this experience now that you're on the other side? So I've been living in LA for several decades and that had gotten very dense. There's a lot of stimulation, very busy, difficult to get around, difficult to see people I cared about, even though we were living in the same city. Just the distances made it almost impossible. It could be a half a day just to meet someone for coffee. I also had this idea that I needed to be in LA because my client base was there. It was such a big client base there. And that if I wasn't there, I would lose clients or that my work would diminish. And the opposite turned out to be true. Now, the pandemic probably contributed to that because we all learned to do things remotely in a way that we hadn't before. But I took that opportunity to try out a new place. I had been thinking about where to go before that, before the pandemic hit. I'd been looking around and I'd done some traveling around the Southwest. I didn't know where I'd go. I'd looked at Colorado. I looked in the Northwest. And on a drive back from Colorado to Los Angeles, I stopped in Santa Fe and just got a hit. It just felt like a good place to be. I did take a month to be here in December to make sure that I you know, could tolerate the winters and the snow and um, decided to make the leap. At the end of the month, I came back to LA and decided to make the leap then. I was concerned about being uh, physically, geographically distant from the people I serve. But it turned out that, what, that being in this environment gave me more space to connect with myself, to connect with what kinds of clients, who did I really want to serve, what work was I doing, what changes did I need to make, and being in a much more open environment, we have no high rises. I'm surrounded by mountains. The air is as clean as it gets. And I literally felt like I was breathing better. And that by breathing better, I was thinking more clearly. And that by thinking more clearly, I was really able to get the core of what was next for me. So in this instance, that's how this environmental shift has really made an incredibly positive impact on, on me personally as a human, but also on my business, because I do feel more open when I'm engaging with people and I'm coming from a much better place. I certainly appreciate you sharing that experience and sharing your perspective. Judith, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. You have such great perspective and clarity on so many aspects of mindset and belief systems and psychology. So thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about your work and what you're doing online? So I have a website, judith-gordon.com, uh, where anybody can take a peek and see what I do and who I do it for. I'm on LinkedIn, as you already mentioned. 
So, and, and people can email me as well, judith at judith-gordon.com. Well, thanks for the time again. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast.